Are you into the secret histories of exorcisms, Christmas massacres, killdozers, and concert disasters? How about haunted mansions, the Philadelphia Experiment, the Dorm of Death, or Candy Corn? Then you're going to love Ghost Town, a hilarious and sometimes not so hilarious twice-weekly podcast. On Wednesdays, we discuss the secret history of an abandoned, unexplored, haunted, or mysterious place from anywhere in the world. And on Fridays, we cover an amazing historical failure from any time in history. Ghost Town is 100% safe and legal. We guarantee it. It's also fun, spooky, and can contain a riot, a massacre, a murder, or an arch deluxe. I'm Rebecca Lieb. I'm Jason Horton. And And this this is Ghost Town. Town. And you can find Ghost Town wherever you listen to podcasts. Stay up to date on the latest from Heidi Ellen's story. Make sure you subscribe, download, follow, and rate Peoples for the People on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever else you listen to your podcasts. But the big question remains tonight, where is Heidi Allen? We are hearing from the family of Heidi Allen for the very first time. A snowy Easter Sunday just before 8 in the morning when Heidi made her last transaction. The family of Heidi Allen of Oswego County says the new details on her kidnapping and presumed death. Many in the Oswego community believe he and his brother Gary were responsible for Heidi Allen's disappearance. 24 years after his arrest for the kidnapping and presumed murder of 18-year-old Heidi Allen. I've been in this from day one, is you know, there's nothing else I can say. All I know is they ended up chopping her up. What do you think happened to Heidi? What was done with her body? The thing, the thing was, there wasn't really any hard evidence at all. This is the story of Heidi Allen, the 18-year-old convenience store clerk who mysteriously vanished on Easter morning in 1994. The information you hear in this podcast comes directly from original court documents, police reports, witness statements, and recorded interviews. And if you haven't yet, go listen to the first three episodes. In the last episode, we took a look at Gary Thibodeau's trial, where no physical evidence implicating Gary was ever presented. For hours, the jury sifted through dozens of witness testimonies and asked the judge to hear many of the testimonies again before coming back with their decision. Guilty. The jury found Gary responsible for Heidi's kidnapping and presumed murder. But Heidi's story was far from over. This is Peoples for the People. And I'm Alex Peoples. But I think we need a miracle I'm tired Of being held down And I'm tired Of watching these people die The jury did not buy his claim of not guilty. They took about three and a half hours to convict him of first-degree kidnapping in the 1994 disappearance of Heidi Allen. The teenager was never found, but the law presumes she died during the kidnapping. Thibodeau faces a maximum state prison sentence of 25 years to life. Gary was stunned by the outcome, but his attorney, Joe Fahey, told me that he could see an outcome like that coming. 
I, I was worried about the atmosphere and the pressure and the community pressure and what, what, what effect that was going to have on a jury. So uh, I didn't, you know, I, I, I was hoping that uh, they would sift through the evidence and come up with the same conclusion that seems pretty obvious to everybody. But uh, that wasn't the case. I mean, I remember when the, when the verdict came in and he was found guilty, uh, there was a lot of cheering and balloons were released and uh, uh, in the parking lot outside the courthouse as I was leaving. Though we understood, the verdict still haunts Fahey. You, you lay awake a lot of nights trying to f- analyze, what, what did I miss something? Did I do something? Did I fail to do something in the course of that? And there's nothing I can put my finger on to say I, I, I made any mistakes with respect to that trial. Years after Gary's conviction, John O'Brien tracked down Beth Head, who sat as a juror in Gary's trial. Hello? Hi, Beth. John O'Brien. Yeah. Hey, John O'Brien. Uh, Sorry about that. Uh-huh. That's okay. So, yeah, thanks for emailing me. It's weird. I was just a few days earlier been finally tracking down the jurors because you know, I'd like to know what you guys have been thinking lately. Head said while there was no physical evidence linking Gary to the crime, there were other factors that led to the guilty verdict. The people that lived uh, across the street from Gary, oh, right. yeah. or that the, the van was in his driveway that morning, right. yeah. and they said they remembered it because it was Easter Sunday. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it, it just it's, it made sense. Yeah. Okay. Um, I did not, and the guy from the jail, I, I really, I mean, they say that that's, that's what did the case, but I really didn't put a lot of, okay. lot of belief in him, but I, the, the, the other people that, okay. yeah. yeah. Well, one of those people that Beth Head is referring to recanted her testimony right after the trial, meaning she took back what she said on the stand. Remember Brittany Link? The 13-year-old who said she saw Richard's van at Gary's house on Easter morning in 1994, right around the time that Heidi was kidnapped? Listen to this statement given by Link after the trial. Quote, During the course of the interview, I advised Detective Yurden four or five times over a 45-minute period that I just wasn't sure if what I saw was real or whether it was a dream. I thought it might have been a dream, and felt strongly about this. Additionally, I was not even sure whether this happened on April 3rd, 1994, and I told Detective Yurden that I wasn't sure about the date two or three times." End quote. In this same statement, Link also recalls the interviews that she had with Donald Dodd. Quote, At one point, Dodd and I were alone in the room as my parents had left to go to the vending machines. Dodd then told me, in words to the effect of, I'm going to be asking a lot of questions. Just agree and say yes, and things will go quickly, and you'll be able to get out of here quickly. End quote. Link's statement didn't end there. Quote, Dodd asked me if I felt comfortable taking the stand. I said I felt uncomfortable, because I just wasn't sure if this was a dream, and that I actually saw what I saw. Dodd then said, that's okay, but if I were you, I wouldn't mention that it may have been a dream, but you do what you want." End quote. According to Link's statement, she was interviewed by Dodd on a handful of occasions, and every time, 
Link said she would tell Dodd the same thing. Quote, Each time I was interviewed by Assistant District Attorney Donald Dodd, I told him I wasn't sure if this was a dream or if it actually happened. I wasn't even sure about the date. Dodd would always tell me, that's okay, kiddo, and immediately change the subject. This led me to believe that I was not supposed to say these things at trial. On the day I testified, Dodd confirmed my feelings by telling me that he wouldn't mention the dream at the trial if he were me. End quote. Link's sworn statement also said that Dodd spoke with her right before Richard Thibodeau's trial and told her she had to testify the same way she did at Gary's trial. Then Dodd gave her a copy of the testimony she gave at Gary's trial. I reached out to Link a couple of times, but she wouldn't talk to me. Hello? Hi, is this Brittany? This is. Hi, Brittany. This is Alex Peebles. We, we spoke briefly about a month or so ago. I'm doing a podcast on the Heidi Allen case, and I just wanted to try... Negative. I'm not doing this. Goodbye. But there is a transcript of a videotaped interview that Brittany did from December 5th, 1995. The interview was conducted by investigator Robert Culver, who was hired by the defense. And during the interview, Link spoke about her testimony the way you would expect any 13-year-old to speak. Quote, The two investigators that interviewed me, they were, I felt pressured. They pressured me. They're like, are you sure? Are you sure? And I was like, I'm not positive. They're like, you have got to be positive. Is it more a yes or a no? I'm like, I don't know. And they, I felt really like I was forced to say yes. End quote. Quote, it was the first one. It was your Yurden. He came to my house, asked me if I seen anything. I go, this is exactly what I told him. I go, well, I wake up in the morning. I looked out the window because I had to go pee and I seen a van. And I go, I'm not for sure. I might have been half asleep. I'm not sure. I go, I was half asleep. I go, I could have been dreaming it because I seen the van over there before, you know? No big deal. End quote. During Gary's trial, Dodd argued that Link absolutely remembered it was Easter morning when she saw Richard's van. Quote, It sticks out in her mind because it's a big deal when you're a kid. It's a big deal. Easter baskets. End quote. Dodd was trying to make the point that Link remembered specifically that it was Easter morning because she remembered getting her Easter basket. Well, according to Brittany's interview, the Easter basket was a big deal, but she didn't get her Easter basket the morning she said she saw Richard's van. Quote, I go, I'm not even sure if it was Easter weekend. I go, it could have been the weekend before that or after that, because if it was Easter weekend, after I went pee, I probably would have went to see if my basket was there. End quote. When Link said that her recollection could have been from the week after Easter, well, that's consistent with what Gary's story was. Several witnesses said Richard and the van were at Gary's house that morning. They were all wrong. He was not there Easter morning. He was there the Saturday following that because my car was broke down. He picked me up. We went down to his house. They were all going out on the search. So we and me and Sharon went out on the search with them. But shortly after her interview, Brittany Link took back what she said about being pressured. In which she recanted? Yeah. Yeah, she, she, she did that. And then uh, the investigators who took the affidavit from her 
also had a uh, videotape of the recantation on f- what, what they what, what what they didn't do was they didn't tell her they had videotaped her. Um, so what happened was uh, we made a motion to reopen and vacate Gary's conviction yeah. based on Brittany Link's recantation. And we had a hearing. And uh, of course, between the time she gave us the affidavit and the time we had the hearing, uh, she had recanted her recantation. Had Link not recanted her recantation of her testimony, it still could have been ruled that her testimony was a harmless error during the trial meaning that there was enough evidence against Gary that even without Link's testimony, the jury still would have convicted Gary. But according to juror Beth Head, the testimony of each of Gary's neighbors played a big role in the conviction. She, when it came out during the hearing that the investigators had videotaped her, she became very hostile. Um, and and, and um, Dad presented her as a victim at that point. All Gary could do at this point was wait for his punishment to be issued during a sentencing hearing. Once somebody's convicted, the system goes into overdrive Mm -hmm. to protect that conviction, irrespective of what kind of exculpatory evidence is later turned up. DNA evidence, obviously, that's forensically conclusive. But if it's not DNA evidence... The, 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 the system goes into overdrive to preserve to make the sure. finality of that conviction. But on the day of Gary's sentencing, another twist to the story unveiled itself. According to Post Standard reporter John O'Brien, information about Heidi Allen keeping detailed diaries was leaked to the defense by a source who did not want their name disclosed. According to the source, there was no mention of either Gary or Richard Thibodeau in the diaries. O'Brien said the source of the leak did not come from the sheriff's office or the district attorney's office. The other thing I didn't know about was the diary. That came that that came after up the trial. After the, the trial. The trial. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, what was what, the importance I, of that? Pardon? What was the importance of her diary? She never mentioned the Thibodeaus in it. You know, they 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 they, they had this. It was a daily account of of, of her life. And uh, there wasn't a single mention of uh, Gary or Richard Thibodeau in the diary. Um, And both Gary and Richard Thibodeau denied knowing her. After finding out about Heidi's diaries, Fahey asked the judge to have the DA's office turn them over. Fahey believed that had the diaries been turned over before the trial, that Gary would have never been convicted. But Fahey's request was denied by Judge Clary who presided over Gary's trial. It was time for Clary to issue the punishment. During the hearing, Heidi's mom, Sue Allen, said a few words to the judge describing Heidi's character and how there is not a day that goes by where she does not think of her daughter. Throughout this entire process, Gary maintained his innocence. And as a last-ditch effort to prove it, Gary even said he would take a truth serum in his last words to Judge Clary, Gary said, quote, I feel like Jesus Christ being executed again for something I had nothing to do with. I've been telling the truth all along and still am. I'm innocent. End quote. Gary's pleading 
didn't stop Clary from issuing the maximum punishment. With no body, no evidence, no eyewitnesses placing him at the scene of the crime, Gary Thibodeau was sentenced to 25 years to life in prison. Not eligible for parole until 2019, Gary sat in prison hoping for an appeal. everyone, I'm Talia. And I'm Tanya. And together we're two attorneys that really like to dive into the details of true crime cases, which is why we created Crimes and Consequences, our own true crime podcast. In our podcast, we really want to know the details of a case. So it's really important to us to try to get transcripts and audio or video recordings when we can. In addition, we don't really want to just rehash cases you've always heard. Of course, there's a place for the really famous cases, but it's also interesting to learn about true crime stories that you've never heard before. To give you just a little feel for how our podcast goes, here's a snippet from episode 34 called Closed Casket. Later on that same day at 3.08 p.m., the Smith residence received another phone call from the kidnapper. Here's part of that phone call. 4.58 So if you're like Tanya and I and you want to know the gritty details of the true crime case, listen to Crimes and Consequences, a hardcore true crime podcast. Now, Thibodeau's brother Richard also faces trial for the kidnapping, and investigators have always thought that if Gary could be isolated behind bars for long enough, Richard or others would tell all about what happened to Heidi and where she is now. I asked Gary Thibodeau about that during our interview at the Oswego County Jail. That's a bunch of hogwash. They, they can put everybody in my family in jail, and they're still not going to know any more than they know right now because they're, they're after the wrong people. And you don't know who the right people are? No, I don't. Believe me, if I did, if it was my brother, I'd rat him out in a New York heartbeat. The evidence in Richard's trial was the same evidence presented against Gary, with the exception of the two jailhouse informants. For two hours, defense attorney so William Walsh attacked this. the case against Richard Thibodeau. Witnesses, he claimed, were mistaken, police overzealous. His theme, that jurors need to let common sense take charge. Why would a 50-year-old man get up on Easter Sunday morning, let a law-abiding life, get up and go to the D&W convenience store, buy two packs of cigarettes, abduct a girl, murder her, go home, pick up his family, and go to Easter dinner. It doesn't make sense. Prosecutor Donald Dodd urged the jury panel to look at who testified for the prosecution. This is not a great big conspiracy where all these folks got together so that you collectively could say, this man's guilty. This is not a conspiracy. All these people aren't cozying up their stories. They're witnesses. And you've got to decide who was truthful and who wasn't truthful. The biggest hurdle for Dodd was the debacle over May Stratton, 
who claimed to have seen Richard and Gary Thibodeau dumping something in a wooded area of Palermo on April 6th, three days after Heidi's disappearance. It later turned out Stratton was wrong. Richard Thibodeau had been working that day. Dodd dismissed the importance of that issue. Walsh didn't. May Stratton. As God is my judge, that's the man. It's not the man, ladies and gentlemen. It's not the man. The final words the jurors heard before heading home for the evening were the words of prosecutor Donald Dodd, words accusing Richard Thibodeau as Heidi Allen's kidnapper. This man right over here, Richard P. Thibodeau, this man participated in the abduction of Heidi Allen. It is now your day to judge him. Also, something mentioned in this trial that wasn't mentioned in Gary's was knowledge of the diaries. And, and the diary was admitted into evidence during Richard's trial. Trial. Okay. And the judge told the, 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 and I believe what they did, I don't know that the diary was admitted in, but I think what the judge in, in, in Richard's trial did was to, tr was to instruct the jury that... Uh, he had examined uh, Heidi Allen's diary and that there was no mention of Gary or Richard Thibodeau in it. Though Clary didn't allow the defense to get Heidi's diaries, Richard's attorney, Bill Walsh, was able to argue that Richard was never mentioned in them. He knew that based on what the source of the leaked diaries said. Well, Richard Thibodeau arrived at Oswego County Court this morning expecting a jury to begin deliberations in his kidnapping trial. Richard's jury deliberated for nine hours before coming back with a verdict of not guilty. I was able to reach four of the jurors at Richard's trial. Thomas Bukowski, Sharon Dorr, Joseph Jadis, and Madeline Slate. And they, for the most part, seemed to believe they made the right decision acquitting Richard. From what they had on the guy, they didn't have anything that we actually saw. We tried to find him guilty, not not guilty. They didn't have it. They said that the, they cleaned up the truck and they couldn't find any hair or anything else in there. They could have grew potatoes in the back of that truck. It was so filthy and shit. And not to find any hair or skin or anything else in there. Everything they said was just bullshit. That was Thomas Bukowski's recollection. And the jury four-person, Sharon Dorr, seemed to agree. They didn't have any real proof. They had hearsay. You know, somebody said they saw him pushing a lady's head down in the car. Really? Did you get a license plate? Any kind of description? I mean, it was just so, you know, they said they burned her body in their outdoor furnace. They took the furnace apart. They chucked all of the ashes. There were no human remains in the ashes, and um, they wanted what I heard afterwards, okay? Like the first brother that he was tried first, the one brother. And I guess the jury hated him because he was just really nasty, and they convicted him. And they, <clears throat> maybe unjustly, but they convicted him because he was an asshole. There was no concrete evidence beyond a shadow of a doubt that that man kidnapped and murdered that young lady. Not at all. The lack of evidence against Richard even made Joseph Jadis change his thinking. 
so you feel confident that um, that you guys made the right decision? Yeah, yeah, yeah. There was no. Uh, my first reaction was he was guilty, and I think it was just uh, I wanted him to be guilty, and I think the sheriff's department wanted him to be guilty also, so that can wrap up the case. But uh, after hearing all the evidence, there was no way that they had a case, and it was uh, slam shut, you know, without a lot of reasonable doubt in there. A lot of reasonable doubt. But juror Madeline Slate still believes there was information that they weren't given during the trial. I don't know. It just it just went so so far, but then stopped, and you weren't allowed to know anymore, and that's what bothered me. Hmm. And you had to make your decision on the little bit that you got. So I guess it would be that you didn't get enough information, maybe, mm-hmm. to make a to really feel like you were making um, a justified decision. It would have been a, well, I guess so, a decision. Slate wanted more information, but there wasn't any more information to give the jurors. In fact, the jurors at Richard's trial were given more information than the jurors at Gary's trial. They heard about the diaries but it is understandable that Slate wanted as much information as possible. She was a part of a group faced with making a huge decision. But it's important to remember how our judicial system works. The prosecution, in this case, Donald Dodd, had to prove beyond a reasonable doubt that the defendant, Richard Thibodeau, kidnapped Heidi Allen. The jury decided that Dodd did not meet that burden. And according to Doerr, that came as a surprise to Dodd. In fact, the prosecutor asked him, why? And I told him the same thing I'm telling you. You had no concrete proof. Nothing beyond a shadow of a doubt saying that this man was guilty. And so we, we made him not guilty. So Donald Dodd asked you that question, correct? I guess that's what it was, yeah. Most the, Did he seem... Did he seem... He was sub- flabbergasted. He was absolutely flabbergasted. Never thought for a minute that he would lose the case. And Bukowski added that Dodd's confidence didn't do him any favors. Everybody hated Donald Dodd. Everybody. As just in, the way he came about himself, he, everybody hated the guy. Just like as in the jur- jurors or everyone in town? Yeah, yeah everybody, that, all the jurors hated him. Everybody we talked to that was in the court hated him. Every. Witness came, my name is Donald Dodd. I'm the district attorney for Oswego County, blah, blah, blah. Like he was God's gift to lawyers, you know? So the brother who called police to tell them he was at the scene of the crime just minutes before Heidi's kidnapping, the brother who owned and operated the van that was said to be the van used to kidnap Heidi Allen was acquitted of all charges. But the brother, who could not be connected to the scene of the crime, and who had an alibi, was convicted and sentenced to 25 years to life in prison. The brother got convicted by the two convicts that they got less time for. That isn't right. I, I don't care what jury you're on. Convicts shouldn't be allowed less time to testify against you. What idiot isn't going to testify against you? Even after his conviction, Gary Thibodeau maintained his innocence, and he never gave any information about Heidi's disappearance. 
where she was, was she alive, what happened to her. Although it seemed like Heidi's story had come to an end with Gary's conviction, it was far from over. During Gary's sentencing hearing, the defense argued that Gary deserved a new trial because the prosecution withheld Heidi's diaries. That motion was promptly denied by Clary after he read the diaries and declared they would not have made a difference in the outcome of the trial. But hope was not yet lost for Gary Thibodeau. Defense attorney Randy Bianco was ready to go to bat for him through the appeal process. Well, I had been following the case and I thought that that Gary was um, wrongfully convicted. Um, I felt bad for him. Um, and when I got involved in the case, um, I, I thought he was innocent. I had hired a um, polygraph examiner. I had him given a polygraph. Um, he passed with flying colors. That confirmed what I thought. Um, but it also, you know, I thought I'd use the polygraph results in the appeal, which I did. After sentencing, Bianco filed an appeal to the New York State Appellate Division's 4th Department. The appeal process is long and grueling, and often it can take a year or more just to have your appeal heard. Bianco argued that there was a lack of evidence to convict Gary, and that the presumption of death within the first-degree kidnapping statute was unconstitutional due to its vagueness. Bianco also alleged there were multiple Brady violations during Gary's trial. A Brady violation refers to evidence that could potentially help a defendant in some way not being turned over to the defense. In this case, Bianco argued that by withholding Heidi's diaries from the defense, Donald Dodd violated the Brady rule. Bianco argued that the diaries could have helped Gary during his trial, and violation of the Brady rule could result in a new trial or disciplinary actions against the prosecutor, but it all depends on the circumstance. The defense must show that the undisclosed evidence would have probably changed the outcome of the trial. So what we do know is that in Gary's trial, the diaries never came up and he was convicted, but in Richard's trial, the diaries were mentioned, and he was acquitted of all charges. Now, if that was important enough to tell Richard's jury, right. <clears throat> the fact that uh, I didn't know about the diary, the fact the diary had been held back, uh, would, was in my mind certainly material to the, the testimony in, in, in Gary's trial. The New York State Appellate Division denied Bianco's appeal. That prompted her to go to the highest court in New York, the Court of Appeals. But before Bianco could even file the application, the appeal was denied. Not giving up, in 2004, Bianco filed a habeas corpus petition to the federal court, all while Gary sat in prison, slowly losing hope. A writ of habeas corpus is used to bring a prisoner before the court to determine if the person's imprisonment or detention is lawful. In other words, a habeas petition is a review by the federal courts to review whether the state court violated the defendant's federal constitutional rights. This case was reviewed by a federal magistrate judge who wrote a report recommendation for senior U.S. District Judge Thomas J. McAvoy. And after reviewing the report recommendation, 
Judge McAvoy was free to adopt all, some, or none of it. Remember way back at the start of this podcast when I said I had a connection to this case? Well, I actually have a couple of connections. The magistrate judge who wrote the report recommendation was none other than Judge David E. Peebles, also known around my home as Dad. Judge Peebles would not talk to me on the record. Judges typically will never talk about cases that they've decided on to maintain their judicial impartiality. To be clear, the habeas report recommendation that he wrote only focused on the trial. It did not examine guilt or innocence. The basis for this petition was the prosecutor's failure to disclose Heidi's diaries to the defense and the constitutionality of New York State's first-degree kidnapping statute. In reviewing the case, Judge Peebles did try to track down the diaries, and in doing so, he wrote to the Appellate Division's 4th Department, who heard the appeal back in 1999. And here's an excerpt from the response that he received. Quote, Although the letter from Judge Clary to the attorneys involved in the appeal seems to indicate that the diaries were going to be forwarded to the Appellate Division's 4th Department for in-camera review, our records do not indicate that we ever received the diaries as exhibits. I have reviewed the file on his appeal, and none of the contemporaneous documents reference the diaries. In fact, the court attorney's memorandum to the court indicates specifically that the diaries were not submitted as an exhibit. End quote. So, the diaries that had been at the heart of the appeal filed by Bianco were never even reviewed by the appellate courts. If the prosecution believed that the diaries wouldn't help the defense, why wouldn't they allow the appellate court the opportunity to review them? The appellate division's fourth department even reached out to Dodd requesting the diaries. Quote, Our calendar clerk contacted the office of the district attorney of Oswego County and spoke with district attorney Donald Dodd. Mr. Dodd, who prosecuted the case against Mr. Thibodeau, indicated that any files from this case are in a storage facility, but he could not be sure whether the diaries are in the file. End quote. Years later, in September of 2004, Judge Peebles wrote to Donald Dodd and formally requested that he turn over Heidi Ellen's diaries in response to Bianco's petition. Here's the response from Dodd sent to Judge Peebles on September 28, 2004. Quote, I have personally examined the archived file in this matter involving People versus Gary Thibodeau. I have also spoken with our Oswego County Clerk, Teresa Stevens. I have been advised by Teresa Stevens that the trial judge Clary turned over to Miss Stevens the items that purported to be the diaries of Heidi Allen. Mrs. Stevens advised me that she searched to see if she still had those items marked as court exhibit and was unable to locate them. I additionally checked all of our files in this matter to see if through some set of circumstances they were turned over to our office from Miss Stevens. They were not. Mrs. Stevens' records indicate that they should still be in her possession and she has conducted a search to locate same and is unable to locate them. End quote. Dodd then wrote that he understood why the diaries couldn't be located given that so much time had passed since Gary's conviction. But even years earlier, when the diaries had been requested by the appellate courts, they never received them. How could these diaries just up and vanish? 
they were at the root of the appeals. And I think it's important to reiterate that I've reached out to Donald Dodd several times, but I have yet to hear back. Without being able to look at the diaries, Judge Peebles completed his report recommendation. On October 28, 2004, he recommended that Gary's habeas petition be denied. The report recommendation then went to McAvoy, who accepted and adopted the recommendation in its entirety on December 20, 2004. Bianco objected to McAvoy's decision, stating the prosecution intentionally withheld Heidi's diaries, which she believed constituted a violation of the Brady Rule. Bianco also brought up in her objection an alleged agreement whereby a key prosecution witness would receive a benefit in exchange for his testimony. Bianco was referring to the testimony of Robert Baldessaro. And according to Gary Thibodeau, his trial attorney, Joe Fahey, had proof of that. Thibodeau says Baldessaro got a deal for his testimony, but prosecutor Donald Dodd thwarted defense attorney Joe Fahey's attempt to prove it. They did make a deal. Joe had papers proving it and showing it, but that was not allowed in as evidence because I didn't have the money to fly the DA from Florida, Massachusetts, New Hampshire, and I think there was another state that Donald Dodd called them and begged them to let the charges go on these on uh, Baldazaro because he had he wanted him up here as a witness. Joe read them off, and Dodd says he's just reading off a document, Your Honor. If he wanted them here, he should have subpoenaed them here. But I didn't have the money to fly these people out here. Gary went broke trying to defend his innocence. He spent all of his money keeping Joe Fahey on retainer and maxed out his credit cards getting an FBI forensic expert to testify on his behalf at his trial. Bianco was doing the appeals for Gary pro bono. While Bianco was busy trying to appeal Judge McAvoy's decision, Heidi's cousin, Missy Searles, discovered something mysterious in her mailbox in an unaddressed envelope. Missy gets in her mailbox in an envelope the bracelet. It wasn't mailed because there was no stamp on it, but it was in the mailbox. What did that bracelet say? Uh, Heidi on the front, love Missy on the back. It was a metal bracelet with a chain. Did she wear that all the time? She wore it all the time. It's in the, there's a, one picture that often runs in the media of Heidi, and it's in, that's, she's wearing it in that picture. The only way it could happen is if one of the kidnappers decided to, to give it back to her. And um, the story that Missy tells is that Soon after the kidnapping, she was at a bar where her sister Shaughnessy was the bartender, talking about, of course, the kidnapping of Heidi. And uh, Missy mentions the bracelet. She said the bracelets must be with her. It's, it's not anywhere to be found. But Missy didn't report what she found to the authorities back then. At that time, she had no clue who could have put Heidi's bracelet in her mailbox. Bianco appealed the decision made by McAvoy to the United States Court of Appeals for the Second Circuit on March 1st, 2007. This appeal went before a panel of three judges, Chief Judge Dennis Jacobs and Circuit Justices Richard J. Cardamone and future Supreme Court Justice Sonia Sotomayor. The appeal was decided on May 11th, 2007. The Second Circuit affirmed the judgment of the district court, dismissing the petition brought by Bianco on behalf of Gary Thibodeau. 
Thibodeau had exhausted all of his options. This seemed to be the end of Gary Thibodeau's fight for innocence. Regardless of the outcome, Gary swore up and down he had nothing to do with Heidi Allen's kidnapping. But this exhaustive fight to appeal his conviction drained Gary of all hope. He had given up. And Gary's brother Richard was also upset at the outcome of the appeal process. I talk about this, I get so upset. Because they killed my brother. It, they didn't take a gun and shoot him, but they might just as well have done that. You know? That's my opinion of these people. They're disgusting people that they could do this to innocent people. That's how the, I, I just... Ugh. But as Gary's and his family's hope faded, stories about what happened to Heidi slowly began to flourish in Oswego County. On November 29th, 2000, a man named Tyler Hayes called the sheriff's office after someone was bugging him and his wife at the Liberty Bell Tavern in Mexico, New York. Hayes said a guy told him he knew what happened to Heidi. Hayes then confronted the man in the bathroom, where the man broke down in tears, saying he had dealt with the guilt and did not want to deal with it anymore. Hayes would later testify about this interaction, saying, quote, He told me he had information about the case. I said, yeah, I knew about the case. They arrested two people for it. He said, they're not the ones who did it. I know who did it, and I know the whereabouts of Heidi's body. End quote. Hayes called police that night, and a lead was created based on the phone call. But after giving his statement over the phone, the sheriff's office never followed up with Hayes, nor did they attempt to interview the man that Hayes named. Even more, this information was not shared with Gary Thibodeau's attorney. According to a press release that came out right after Gary's conviction was upheld by the appellate division on December 30th, 1999, police were still looking into Heidi's kidnapping. Quote, At this time, the Oswego County Sheriff's Department and the Federal Bureau of Investigation consider the matter to be an open case. Officers are still assigned to the investigation and continue to follow leads, hoping to find the remains of the missing woman. End quote. Yet, police never followed up on Tyler Hayes' lead, and the man he encountered claimed to know the whereabouts of Heidi's remains. We've already talked about the person who was bragging to Hayes at the Liberty Bell Tavern in November of 2000. His name was Michael Borer. His name popped up almost everywhere I looked, and the more I looked into his past, I realized there was much more to Heidi's story. Why was Michael Borer wrapped up in this case? Find out on the next episode of Peebles for the People. that free man go Lord you let that free man go Lord you let that free man go Lord won't you let that free man Stay up to date on Heidi Allen's story 
by following and subscribing to Peoples for the People on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever else you listen to your podcasts.